Trustworthiness is a big deal just now. Uh, trustworthiness is a big deal across the board. We see that in relation to the scandal that has hit organizations like Oxfam and so on. But how do we know if someone's trustworthy? How do we know that? The answer to that is quite simple, really. So simple that we often, I think, we figure it out as kids. I don't know if you ever played that playground game, Trust Me, uh, depicted in the picture on screen there. You know, the one where you, you stand behind uh, one of your pals and you say, close your eyes, hands across your chest, fall back, I'll catch you, I promise. Whew. Okay, I'm not going to do it. But that's generally because there's no one there. Um, but that we did that. And how do you measure trustworthiness in the playground? Well, if they catch you. If they catch you, you can trust them. You can take them at their word. If they don't, don't play that game with them ever again. Okay? Now, simple lesson, a simple principle, and the same applies to grown-ups. If someone is true to their words, you can really trust them. If they're not, you won't trust them as far as you could throw them. I remember in uh, 1996, show my age, um, that film Jerry Maguire was out. Uh, Jerry Maguire, it's a film about this, this uh, sports agent who loses everything apart from one client, but he really wanted to get this other client, this guy called Kush, okay? NFL, brilliant footballer and so on. At, this, at the start of the film, when he's trying to race around and guarantee that he's going to have all these clients in his own portfolio, he goes to this guy, Kush, and Kush's dad, and he's, he's desperate for them. He slips a piece of paper across the table. He's desperate for them to commit. And the dad says, hey, let's not rush around with all that stuff just now. And he's like, are you sure? He's like, we'll deal with that later. And he looked Jerry Maguire in the eye, and he just said, my word is my oak. My word is is my oak. Well, oak must be pretty insubstantial to that guy because the dad reneged on his promise and disappointed Jeremy Maguire. Now, that's in Hollywood, but I'm sure we've all experienced personal disappointment at the betrayal of trust. People who've said they would do one thing and let you down. We've all experienced that in some way. Trustworthiness is one of the highest virtues in life, in society. That's why things like the Oxfam scandal have rocked us. Well, how does this help us to think about God? Uh, one of the key questions we should be asking is, can we take God as word? He's given us a lot of words. He's given us a lot of explanations, a lot of history, a lot of commands. I want to show you today that you can trust him, that you can take him at his word. And I want to show you that by looking at this passage in 1 Kings 16, 29 to the end of chapter 17. And here is where we meet the enigmatic and the special Elijah. Um, he seems to kind of parachute in out of nowhere. He just appears here in verse 1 of chapter 17. There's no backstory, no bio, but that's okay because this actually isn't about Elijah. It's about God. It's about what Adam pointed out earlier, the word of the Lord. Is that I, I, Isaiah? No, wrong guy. Elijah is just the postman delivering this all-important word. The fact that this is about the word of the Lord, and by the way, if you're looking at Old Testament narrative passages and you're trying to figure out what is the point of this, what am I supposed to be seeing in this? 
Look for those repeated phrases. It's often a clue to the meaning and the main point of the passage. The word of the Lord is repeated here. It's there in verse 34 of 16. It's in verse 2, verse 8, verse 24. In fact, it bookends this whole section. And one of the questions that we even have as readers as we walk through this, even as we look at Elijah, one of these heroes of the faith, is, is Elijah actually going to take God at his word? And that's one of the questions that we'll answer tonight. So my big takeaway tonight is this. If you fall asleep, every, people are looking tired. I feel tired. I might be one of the first preachers to ever fall asleep during one of his own sermons. Um, but my big takeaway tonight is this. You can take God at his word, Christian. You can take God at his word. He will never let you down. He will never renege on a promise. He'll always catch you in the playground principle. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're thinking about this thing called Christianity, maybe you're at the stage where I was at when I was 19 years old, trying to weigh this up. If this is true, then this is going to change everything for me. I was, I was thinking along those lines, but I had to figure out, is this actually true? If that's you tonight, I want you to see from this passage, you can take God at his words, and you can step out in faith. Wait till you see this. This is great. So, we're going to first walk through, this, walk through the passage in three main chunks. First of all, I want to show you that you can take God at his word even when he declares his judgment. What a surprising start. 16.29 to 17.1. Judgment is what is taking place in this section. Elijah's no rain until I say so is God discipline, disciplining this king called Ahab. Now, you only have to look at Ahab's bio at the end of chapter 16 to find out why he is being disciplined. Verses 29 to 34 are pretty shocking. I mean, in Kings, you know, we, we've often talked about all the kings that are lined out in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Are they thumbs-up kings or thumbs-down kings? The majority, the vast majority are thumbs-down kings. But Ahab is a corker. He is a corker. He is like the worst king ever uh, because of his sins and because of his leadership uh, or lack of. I mean, we, we saw a few weeks ago as Adam preached on uh, uh, Jeroboam's sins, we saw that Jeroboam's sins were really bad. He was the guy that built the golden calves and said, yeah, these are the gods that rescued you, worship them. Totally, flagrantly disobedient to gods. But Ahab looks at Jeroboam's sins and, think, and shrugs, oh, whatever. So rubbish at sinning, Jeroboam, in Ahab's mind. Ahab shrugged at his own sin, thought it was a tiny, trivial thing to sin in the ways that he was sinning. And the fact that he was just brazenly disobedient. Uh, even his marriage proved that. Let me just give you one example. God had said in his word not to intermarry with the pagan nations, and he said it more than once. But look who's by Elijah's side. We're going to find out about this lady uh, next week, Jezebel, in the next couple of weeks, the daughter of the king of Sidon, Ethbal, whose name basically means, I'm with Baal, I'm with Baal. So by marrying Jezebel and setting up temples to Baal and Ashtoreth, Ashtoreth was basically Mrs. Baal, okay, uh, Ahab was saying, hey, I'm with Baal too, which is ridiculous compared, now contrast that with Elijah, who comes on the scene at the same time. So here's a guy who's saying, by all of his practices and his disobedience, and with Baal, here's a guy who comes along with the word of the Lord and says, my God is the Lord. That's what his name means. 
my God is the Lord. That he's, so Ahab is the worst king ever, not just because of his sins, but because of his leadership. Verse 34, uh, his lack of leadership. Ahab allows this to happen under his nose. Jericho is rebuilt by some guy called Hiel, who thought it would please his idol, whoever that was, to sacrifice his two sons at different parts of the building project. Now, guess what? As horrendous as that is, God had actually foretold quite specifically that that was going to happen. You can read about it later. I don't have time to go into the many cross-references we could go to in this passage. But that's, he foretells that in specific detail in Joshua 6. I think it's verse 23. That's why you read in verse 34b, this happened in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua. So the word of the Lord is not just spoken in this passage, it's been spoken before and many times. Now the fact that this happened in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua should say to every single one of us, believer or not tonight, that you can take God at his word. I mean, who else can foretell things so far in advance and have them happen with such detail? Only the Lord, who is sovereign over all things and who's working out his plan. Well, Elijah's arrival and even the judgment that is spoken by Elijah double proves that you can take God at his word. Now, here's where we see that judgment comes on Ahab because he hasn't taking God at his word. God had made himself very clear. He said it. He wrote it down. He published it for everyone to see in Deuteronomy 11. This is a cross-reference we must go to. Verses 16 and 17 say, be careful. This is the Lord your God speaking. Or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. See that again? You really can take God at his word. When Elijah comes on scene and declares the reason why you're having no rain for the next three and a half years is because God said so. It's because God said that if you did this, his judgment would be upon you. Now, what does this mean for us today? Well, the warning of judgment for sin definitely hasn't gone away. I want to make that really clear. It doesn't come in the form of drought. We can't look at places like Somalia and South Sudan and say God is judging them. But his judgment is being worked out in the world and is identifiable in different ways. I mean, Romans 1 tells us all about this. Romans 1 to 3 effectively tells us that Ahab, as horrendous as he is, is alive and well in every single one of us. Uh, in all who shrug their shoulders at sin and say, not with God, hey, I'm with Baal. Well, the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people in our world who don't take God at his word. And the that's God's judgment, and it's heavy on us. And the proof of that judgment is not famine for us. According to Romans 1, it's unrestrained sin, unnatural relations, and more. That's why we, I suppose, as a secondary application, need to be those who do speak out into our culture and into the lives of our friends around us to warn them. But if you are here tonight and you're not a Christian, this is an important aspect of what we believe as Christians. 
um, that, that judgment is in one sense here, but is in another sense coming. And Jesus himself warned of a greater judgment to come. But the good news is that as so often, whenever there's judgment in the Bible, there's often, there's the offer of relief. So the relief in 1 Kings 17 is that Elijah's going to come to a point where he's going to pray and the rain will come. There's offer of relief for those described in Romans 1. It's in the second part of Romans 3. It's a righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. But there is a judgment that's coming that will be eternally irreversible. And that makes choosing I'm with Baal or I'm with God a very important decision today. Who will you choose? It's a big question we're going to ask next week as we look at Mount Carmel and the scene there. Sin isn't a small thing in God's eyes. It is deserving of judgment. And if we need any proof of that, that God will not shrink back from, if you need any proof of that, we need to see that God will not shrink back from judging us. We just need to look at verse one. God did not shrink from bringing, bringing this judgment on the nation of Israel and surrounding areas. You see, when he declares no rain until I say, we struggle to understand what that means, don't we? We're like, no rain, awesome. No rain here, people are going to die. Serious judgment. So number one, the fact that there's judgment proves that you can take him at his word when he declares that kind of judgment. He's proved it in the past, he's trustworthy. Secondly, you can take God at his word when he promises to provide. And he does, you know, God promises to provide for us in all kinds of ways, in the most mundane ways, and at times in the most amazing ways. Elijah in particular, as we'll see in, in these verses here in 2 to 16, are absolutely phenomenal ways, right? This isn't, okay, I'm going to expect to be fed by some pigeons tomorrow. Uh, you know, I'm going, to let them, I'm going to look for some roadkill and see it as the Lord's provision. That's not what this passage is saying. But if you look with me at verse 2, Elijah receives support and providence from the Lord, but it's all in accordance with a direct command. In fact, we're going to see a pattern emerging here. It's really repeated three times, where you have a command offered, a promise to accompany it. You see the obedience of the person receiving the command and the fulfillment of it. And I wonder if you've noticed this about God's instructions and God's commands, even to us, through the New Testament. He never asks us to do something without offering his help. And that's a relief. So here's the command, verse 3. Leave here and go to the Kerith Ravine. Verse 4, here comes the promise. You'll drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens to feed you there. Now, put yourself in Elijah's sandals. What might stop you from taking God at his word in that very moment? Think about it. God has just said to you, I want you to go to this ravine. You're going to drink from the brook there. You're like, there's a famine. All right, I'm quite happy with that. I'll be able to be, I need water. That'll be okay. And by the way, the unclean birds uh, that you're not allowed to touch if they're alive, never mind dead, yeah, they're going to bring you food every day, morning and evening. What would you think? It's cracking, isn't it? You're just like, no way, seriously? 
That's incredible. How are you? How, Lord? Can I get a bit more info before I commit to going? Really, Lord? You know, ravens? I wonder if you find in your heart this tendency to question or doubt the promises that God has made. Whether they seem as bizarre, maybe, as I'm going to feed you with ravens, Elijah, or uh, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You struggle to take him at his word when he promises forgiveness or in death when he promises life like for Owen's dad. Or he promises heaven for those who die believing him. He promises his presence and his help in the midst of suffering for all who believe in him. And Again, again and again in this passage, it comes back around to, are you going to take God at his words? What does Elijah do? Elijah takes God at his word. He has faith. He is sure of what he hopes for. He's certain of what he does not see. C.S. Lewis once said, faith is like a forward memory. Allowing us to believe as if what is promised has already happened. That's what Elijah did. And verse 5, we see his obedience. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. Fulfillment. Verse 6. I love this. You can really take God at his word. Unclean ravens delivered sandwiches to Elijah. Bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. It's awesome, isn't it? It must have been incredible. Now, you might need to wash the bird spit, of the meat and maybe eat it while you're holding your nose. But hey, when there's famine, you're going to enjoy that food. And not just once. This is the thing about this. Often when God makes a promise to us to provide for us in certain ways, it's not like he just gives you a lifetime supply of something in one bolus. There is a the requirement for daily faith. That must have been what it was like for Elijah. Imagine what that was like. Put yourself in his shoes again. It's Sunday. You don't have any food for Monday morning. Nothing. How do you feel about that? The doubts start to creep in about whether or not the ravens are going to make it tomorrow. Elijah had to trust God every day for daily provision. And the simple truth of the matter is so do we. This is the kind of thing that stretches faith, but stretched faith faith is strengthened faith. It's like bodybuilding. And I am not speaking from experience, but when you, I know this, when you lift weights, your muscle fibers stretch and tear, but having undergone such strain, they grow stronger and stronger than they were before. And it's the same with faith. It prepares you for the next thing that requires faith, that requires trust, that requires you to take God at his word because when God has promised to provide for you in certain things, again, it's not like he just, he doesn't just give you it in a bolus and he doesn't promise that it's not going to be difficult on some days. I mean, look at what happened next. The, the brook dries up. 
And then we have this pattern emerging again, this command, this promise, obedience, and fulfillment starting all over again. Verses seven to nine, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Here's the command. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. Here's the promise. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, I don't know about you, but again, my first response would probably be, where? Baal country. Seriously. Like, where Ethbal is the king. So Ahab's dad, father-in-law, is the king of this place that you're asking me to go to. My name is, my God is Yahweh. My God is the Lord. You know, how's it going? What's your name? Uh, Elijah. Kill him. You know, I mean, what would it be like for him? It took faith to obey and to take God at his word that he was going to be looked after as he went. And I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Who? I mean, the widow back in those would have been the most unlikely of hostesses. Widows are not providers. They are provided for. And God chooses actually one of the most poorest people in that town to end up providing for his prophet. And again, friends, don't miss this. God has never made a promise that was too good to be true, and he never will. Elijah knew that. That's why we read in verse 10 of his obedience. So he went to Zarephath. That's such, would you see that? Okay, he obeyed, good. It was a big deal for him to do that. But he trusted God. And he saw the fulfillment of this, didn't he? He meets the widow. Now again, imagine this scene when Elijah first catches sight of this widow gathering sticks. There's a famine in Zarephath too. She's planning to eat her last meal and die. That's her to-do list. She must be skeletal. There's a famine. Baal has let her down big time, hasn't he? Baal, this god of fertility. This god who controls, guess what? Rain. Yeah, how's that going? <laughs> when the Lord's prophet steps up. Now imagine you're in Elijah's shoes again, looking on this skeletal woman. Would you ask her for a drink? Would you ask her for a piece of bread? Well, you would if you took God at his word. And would you insist when she shares the kind of story that you might watch on something like Comic Relief, you know, that she's only got enough in the cupboard for one loaf. She's down to her last ounce. She's down to her last drop. Would you? Again, you would if you took God at his word and promised that in some way, even without seeing what was ahead, he would provide. Because he's promised this already. Now, various things rail against us at this point. A Puritan once said, it is the nature of faith to believe that word. He said, sense says, it will not be. Reason says, it cannot be. We say, it can and it will be for I have the Lord's promise for it. Now watch this. The widow follows the same pattern that Elijah has followed twice. 
Command, promise, obedience, fulfillment. The command first in verse 13 comes from Elijah. First, <laughs> how bold. First, make a small loaf for me. She just said, I've only got enough for one loaf. I'm going to make the loaf. I'm going to die. That's the to-do list. And he's like, yeah, first. First do this. Then the promise comes, verse 14. This is what the Lord says. Well, he's already said in verse 13, by the way, do not be afraid. It does, he acknowledges by saying that. This sounds crazy. But trust me. Don't let your fears cause you to shrink back from what I'm asking you to do. Verse 14, here comes the promise. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up, the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And with the promise, what shall we do? What will she do? What would you do in her shoes? What would you do? Will she take God at his word? Well, she's already acknowledged the Lord lives in her greeting, but she's not a woman of faith quite yet. She said, the Lord, your God. She didn't say the Lord, my God's. But she trusted God in this instance more than what her eyes could see. In verse 15, we see her obedience. She went away and did as Elijah told her. And then the fulfillment. Verse 16, 15b. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with what? The word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Now, don't miss the irony in this whole scene. The king of Israel has turned to Baal for security and for prosperity because he despises God's words. But here is a Baal worshiper turning to the Lord in faith because she takes him at his words. It's brilliant to see. And maybe you're, not, maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, but you're wondering for the first time whether or not you can trust him. You can be like the widow of Zarephath tonight. Take him at his word and see all of his promises come true for you. Do not be afraid. I've got this picture etched in my mind at the, the night that I became a Christian. I was leaving Catherine's flat. Catherine and her friends had spent the night after a CU meeting hearing me ply them with more questions. And I'll, I'll never forget leaving late, late, late that night on, for a 20-minute walk back to my own flat down in the city center of Dundee. And leaving the flat, walking halfway down the stairwell and hearing Catherine call out to me saying, Liam, don't be scared. You'll never regret it. Don't be afraid. Take him at his word. And I did. Like the widow of Zarephath. Each of us who put our faith and trust in Christ have had a time or a moment like that when we have realized that it's time to not be afraid. We're going to take him at his word. And every single one of us could, if we wanted to, if I did it, 
we could stand up tonight and say, I've never regretted it. There's nothing greater, nothing surer, nothing more wonderful. So can I encourage you, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, chat to the person who brought you. Chat to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about this. Chat to the prayer team down front. Ask them, what, is it, what does it mean to take God at his word? Essentially, it's about repentance and faith. It's about turning away from the Baals, from the idols, from the old sinful Ahab-like shrugging of sin way of life and turning in joy to receive all the, the fulfillment, the blessings of the promises of God, forgiveness of sins, new life in his name, and forever in his presence with him. Speak to us about that or speak to God about it. Pray to him, talk to him, it's as simple as that. Now this is of course a specific promise to the widow in this whole scenario. None of us here are promising that your biro or your Napolina oil won't run out if money's tight for us, that's not the way it works. But what we can promise is this, that God has promised to provide us for what we need to do the things that we need to do. God always has us here for a reason when we're here, right? While we have God's provision, while we have life, God has a purpose for us. Maybe it's a conversation to have. Maybe it's a gospel to share, something to pursue. Maybe some forgiveness to seek, whatever it is. I love what George Whitfield said about this. He said, I am immortal until my work for God is done. So true. You can take God at his word. When he declares his judgment, firstly. Secondly, when he promises to provide. And lastly, you can take God at his word, even when hard times come. How often have we found that hardship comes in waves? I mean, it's easy to think that the widow's problems are over as the day, day by day she's found food has come. Her and her son are fed. They're probably sitting around the table enjoying this uh, loaf with Elijah, hearing his stories. But this, this situation, this is just heart-wrenchingly realistic and reproduced in, to the, to, in each of our lives to the point that we empathize with her. We feel her pain some of us with our own. Her boy dies. And she cries out, essentially, why me? What was it that I did? What have I done? Verse 18, what do you have against me, man of God? Do you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son, she asks? Well, when things take a turn for the worse in life. We often ask those kinds of questions. But the thing that we ought to do is let all of those times when God has proven himself, and you only need to look back in your own life, never mind look to the scriptures to see his faithfulness in every single situation, how he's brought you through certain things, to realize that this word of promise is not suddenly stopped. No, but in those moments, allow the, the fact that those moments have shaped for you an understanding of the character of God. You've grown to know who he is as well as you have grown in strength of faith. 
And what does your recognition and your understanding of his character do when this kind of situation hits you? You run to him. You run to him. Not from him, you run to him. People run from him in all sorts of ways. People run to other things like substances, relationships, all kinds of things run to him as Elijah did and take it to him. Because you can pray to him out of a knowledge of God's word and God's character. That's what Elijah does in verse 20. He cries out on the basis of God's reign and his relationship with him. He says, Lord, there's your reign. My God, there's our relationship. So he's essentially saying, please act out of either lordship or love. And then he acts out his prayer symbolically. You see that in verse 21? He stretched himself out in the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. He's not attempting to warm the boy's body. It's already been established that he's dead. He's not trying to be some kind of human space blanket here. To revive him, it's an outward appeal of the words that Elijah offers. In verse 22, we read, The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him, and Elijah, having taken him upstairs out of the arms, out of the arms of his tear-soaked mother, and took him upstairs to pray for him, she probably hearing his prayers as he cries. The word is cry. This is, these are not quiet prayers. He comes back downstairs and puts the son back into her arms, alive. And the woman professes her faith. The woman said to Elijah, now I know, verse 24, that you are a man of God and that what? The word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. She's got it. She has come to understand that you can take God's at his word. She has realized that the word of God that's coming through this preacher, through this prophet Elijah, is absolutely true. And she comes to this point of seeing in the midst of this incredible miracle, this, by the way, is the first resurrection that we've seen in scripture. It's not the only one. It's the first. It's incredible. It makes the faith and the trust of Elijah in this moment. Elijah had not received the kind of command or promise that we looked at in the patterns in the previous point. There was no command. Elijah, pray for the boy to be made alive. Promise, I will make him alive. Obedience. Elijah prayed and lay on the boy and fulfillment, the boy became alive. That's not how it worked. There was, was no specific promise Elijah prayed and cried out to God because he knew that God's word was powerful to change even that situation. Well, this resurrection, of course, points forward to someone else. Oh, we will not see 
This is specific to her, specific in this time, specific to this story. And we will not see our sons and daughters if we lose them being raised from the dead. But we may see them raised in the new heaven and new earth in their perfect bodies as promised. Because this points forward to Jesus, to the one whose words were accompanied by signs and wonders, just like Elijah's, that confirmed what he said and gave everybody around him good cause for faith. Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow of Nain, and Lazarus, four days dead, raised by the word, the power of the word of the Lord Jesus himself. Before the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus called on Lazarus' sister to believe. And it's not magic. My son Daniel's three years old. He was studying this. Studying. He was uh, being taught this in his Sunday school class a few weeks ago. At least I think he was. He might have made it up. Um, and anyway, he was like, Dad, I was learning about Lazarus. And I was like, oh, what happened to Lazarus? And he went, very matter-of-factly, he died. And I said, oh, and what happened to him next? And he was like, he came alive again. Like Daniel's three and a half, he's full of energy, right? He came alive again. And I went, how did that happen? And he went, magic. (laughs) I said, what's the name of your Sunday school teacher? (laughs) No, I didn't. It's not magic, brothers and sisters. It is the word of the Lord that is powerful and effective to awaken even dead people from their grave to testify to an entire world that the word of the Lord is true and you can take him at his word. I have. This room is filled with people who have. Have you? Don't be afraid. You'll never regret it. Jesus, even before he raised Lazarus from the dead, said to one of his sisters, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And he asked the question, the searching question, do you believe this? Do you? He died. He rose again. And through his resurrection was declared in power to be the son of God whose word was impeccably true. Not a lie left his lips. And he promised us the heavens. Not the earth, the heavens. Will you take him at his words? So if the measure of someone's trustworthiness is tied up with doing what they say they will do, then God in 1 Kings 17 shows you that he's trustworthy, right? Surely, I'm happy to debate that with you if you're still uncertain. In judgment, in provision, in promise, the word of the Lord is true and you can take him at his word. God writes with a pen that never blots, speaks with a tongue that never slips, acts with a hand that never fails. So if you, dear friend, have not put your trust in him, do that tonight. If you, dear brother or sister, are struggling with some situation, he has not taken his hands off the wheel. Whether it's sickness or suffering, 
despair in your heart of some kind, massive anxiety about the future in some way, honestly, whatever it is, he has not taken his hands off the wheel. You can take him at his word for every single one of his promises. For the word of the Lord from his mouth is true. Let's bow our heads.